Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today Dr. Darren W. Snyder Balusek. Uh, Balusek? I think I pronounced that right. <laughs> uh, Darren is the author of a few different books. Uh, the first big book he wrote is called Atonement, Justice, uh, and Peace. And he also wrote uh, Good News, The Advent of Salvation in the Gospel of Luke. The book we're going to talk about today is his recent book, which is an absolutely outstanding book called Marriage, Scripture, and the Church. Um, I have it right here. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm holding it up in front of the camera. The subtitle is Theological Discernment on the Question of Same-Sex Union. When I got an email uh, last fall to endorse this book, I got an email from Baker Publishing saying, hey, would you consider endorsing Darren's book? I almost deleted the email for two reasons. Number one, I was on sabbatical and I was deleting a lot of emails when I would actually check my email. And number two, I kind of thought, another book on same-sex marriage? Like, um, I think, what else is there that hasn't been said, you know? And, but I, you know, I happened to open up the manuscript and started looking at it and immediately I was hooked. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the kind of missing link to this conversation. Not that, you know, what he talks about hasn't been said before necessarily, but the way he frames the conversation about the meaning um, of marriage as the starting point for wrestling with what does the Bible say about same-sex sexual unions. It ultimately is a question about what is marriage. And I've said that, I've, I've kind of been um, emphasizing that over the last few years, but even as I mentioned in the podcast, even in my own book, People to Be Loved, I've got a chapter on marriage and I don't think it was done that well because I don't think I framed it in exactly the same way that Darren frames the question. So and knowing that, looking back on my book, People to Be Loved, I'm like, oh man, if I was gonna, gonna, if I was gonna rewrite this book, m- much of what I say in the book would probably say the same. Um, little tweaks and adjustments here and there, but I would completely rewrite, um, well, largely rewrite my chapter on, on marriage because I think it, I, I didn't frame it uh, the best way in that book. And I think Darren frames it exactly the way uh, I would do so today. And it's such a, it's a gracious book. It's a very thoughtful, very thorough book. It's an academic book. So if you do buy the book, which I would highly recommend, um, just make sure you're getting into a very in-depth robust um, treatment of the topic. So uh, very excited about this conversation. We do talk a lot about just kind of different arguments for and for or for and against uh, same-sex marriage in the church. We wrestle a lot with Ephesians 5, Genesis 1 and 2, and just the overarching storyline of scripture as it relates to marriage. If you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology become part of the Patreon community um, where you get access to premium content, uh, monthly podcasts, uh, Q&A, dialogues, and much, much more. Patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. All right, let's welcome to the show for the first time, Dr. Darren snyder Belusek. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology and Rom. Here with my new friend uh, Darren Snyder uh, Belusik, and um, as I said in the intro, he has written uh, an outstanding book called uh, "Marriage, Scripture, and the Church: Theological Discernment and the que- on the Question of Same-Sex Union," which we'll talk about in a second. But Darren, first of all, thanks so much for being on Theology and Rom, and would love for you to just tell your story. How, how did you 
how'd you become a philosopher? <laughs> was that something that as a kid you always wanted to pursue or is this something that you got into later on in life? Uh, yeah, well, okay. Well, thank you, Preston, for the invitation to join you um, on this uh, on this podcast. I'm really grateful for that. And it's good to meet you uh, screen to screen, at least uh, for the first time this morning. Um, no, I would never have dreamed of being a philosopher. I wouldn't have known what one was until I went to college. And uh, and uh, I was not on my path to becoming an academic either. Um, I was raised in a farming, uh, rural, small town, and was was actually intending to go into the agricultural field. <laughs> it's interesting now to sort of to think about this. Is like okay, yes, I've thought about this many times, but now, all right. So, um, but I. Um, I got involved in philosophy because I was in an honors program at the college I went to as a junior college, Joliet Junior College, the first uh, two-year public community college in the U.S. And, the, uh, and, um, and they had an honors program they were starting and invited me to be part of it. And, and the first year, uh, or maybe it was the second year I was there, the second semester, the only honors course they had on offer was intro to philosophy. I had no intention of ever taking philosophy. I thought, okay, I'll take this, do it and be done with it. Well, I don't know how many weeks in we were before I was hooked. Hmm. And um, around the same time, though, I also shifted my my major over to physics. And that was a odd thing going from agriculture to physics. Mm -hmm. I'd done well in physics in high school, and I just wasn't being challenged enough in college. And I thought, if I'm going to do this and spend all this money um, and go through all this, I want a I want an intellectual challenge. Mm -hmm. And and so I thought, what's the hardest thing in the book? Uh, course catalog and it was physics I thought okay let's try that and I didn't done well and enjoy this so I was then doing physics along with philosophy uh, uh, as a my physics major philosophy minor through through my undergraduate years and um, and then decided I really wanted to continue on with that that had not been you know what I goal I had set but by the time I was finishing I wanted to go on with that and the path forward was to go on in the field of history and philosophy of science um, so combining philosophy and science, you know, and physics together, and I was able to do that at the University of Notre Dame, um, where I eventually got my PhD. Um, and and um, now this also then connects of how I end up getting involved with theology because um, while I was there, I um, I had drifted away from the church um, during my college years. And, and of course, if you're wanting to get away from the church, um, don't go to Notre Dame. <laughs> because I'm in the midst of a very, very Catholic institution. I was there for the academics and a very solid program and what I was pursuing and so on. But, uh, of course, I found myself surrounded by the church and surrounded by friends who were Christians, most of them Catholic. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they kind of, through friendship, wooed me back into mm -hmm. the church. Um, and I found myself then needing to reconnect to the, to the local church. And that ended up being a Mennonite congregation in South Bend, Indiana, where Notre Dame is. And it so happens that that's just a half hour away from the, uh, from the, uh, one of the major, uh, seminaries of the Mennonite church, um, in North America, in Elkhart, Indiana. And I realized I wanted to learn to read the Bible and to study the Bible and to think theologically, uh, to deepen my faith, to deepen my um, life with Jesus. 
And and so I started just taking a cor- auditing courses one at a time. Mm. And of course, again, I got hooked about, uh, oh, maybe about 30 minutes into a the first class of Old Testament theology with Ben Ollenberger, who's a classic Old Testament yeah. uh, theologian who's recently retired and so on. Uh, anyway, and it just went from there, right? And so I've tried to combine then over the last, you know, 20 plus years, then now, uh, you know, philosophy and and now theology. And um, mostly what I teach is philosophy uh, over the course of the years. I have taught some theology courses and, um, and I now teach at a university with uh, several professional colleges and, and I teach professional ethics there. And that's what they need uh, and have yeah. needs for. And that, that came about through some life circumstance and God leading down some paths and so on. Um, and providing this. And so I teach professional ethics to aspiring, uh, apprenticing engineers, pharmacists, and, uh, and others, you know, who are on their way to professional careers. I teach ethics to them. So that's what I do. That's my day job as it were. And then I've been, um, you know, working on, uh, biblical study and and biblical theology and so on, and have been working in that, you know, for a, a number of years. And this is, this is now my fourth book, and uh, this one, and um, and so it's it's the product of many many years of just careful, patient study, um, as well as of course the uh, the practical context of this question. You know, engaging with the surrounding church in my denomination, the Mennonite Church, um, around this question. So, yeah. well, when I so when I got the manuscript, I was actually on uh, sabbatical. And I got an email um, from your publisher saying, hey, would you consider endorsing this book? And I saw that it was on the question of same-sex unions. And I I was like, well, what else could be said? And I almost – I haven't told you this. I almost deleted the email. I was like, I'm on sabbatical. No way. But I opened the manuscript, and immediately when you – because this has been my hobby horse – ah, hobby, that sounds too strong. My theological concern maybe – is is that this whole debate about same-sex marriage or marriage or well so let's just say same-sex sexual relationships um it's missed this question um of the question of what is marriage like you know i often get the question can two why, what's wrong with two people the same sex getting married they're not you know and typically it goes you know that they're not hurting anybody they love each other it's consensual so what's the problem and i said well that's a really good question can two people the same sex get married but we need to first ask a more important question, what is marriage? Because the word marriage has various definitions. So I need to know what you mean by the very term marriage. Like what is marriage when you're using the term same-sex marriage? Um, and you, you, that, this is the premise of your whole book. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And I started reading it and I, got, I just absolutely got hooked. And that's why I, I was eager to write an endorsement. I said, this, this is the... Yeah. <laughs> In a discussion that you didn't think there was any missing links, things that haven't been said, this is that book. And so I was so excited to uh, engage it. And in fact, one, one more thing, and I want to t- toss it back to you. I mean, I have one chapter on marriage in my book, uh, People to be Loved. If mm-hmm. I were to do a second edition, edition of that book, I would completely rewrite that chapter. Because I even then, that, this is 2014 when I finished the manuscript, I, di- I still didn't quite get it. I knew the question of marriage was an important piece. But one chapter, and I still didn't even frame it right in that chapter. I've never said this publicly, by the way. <laughs> but that, 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 I think that is, um, it's a helpful chapter, I think, but it's probably the weakest because oh. I did not frame it right. 
Um, yeah. So anyway, what 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 led you, yeah, to wanting to even begin researching this topic, and then uh, can you? I would love to hear more from you. Yeah, this question sure. of marriage and why that yeah. is so vital. And by the way, you're a good company. Augustine, St. Augustine, at the end of his life, wrote a whole retractions, right, about <laughs> went back through all his works and what he had missed and gotten wrong and yeah. so forth. So that's a good discipline for all of us to do yeah. at some point, right, to look yeah. back and well, I wouldn't do it the same way again or I'd rewrite it in this way. So yeah. that's process of, of learning and discernment to the spirit. Um, yes, well, you know, I wouldn't have started with that question either, and I didn't start with that question. Um, that um, what I was sort of looking at was, I mean, this is sort of a, uh, a, a question and issue that's been in, you know, discussion, debate within my denomination, Mennonite Church USA, and of course the larger church uh, and so forth. And it was, of course, part of the, the cultural thing. You know, I first started thinking about this maybe back in the 1990s when they were talking about, you know, should there be a law to provide for civil unions or domestic partnerships or things like that, and thinking about those kinds of questions just in terms of the wider society. Uh, but then it, it also became a, was, was a, uh, a focal point of discussion and debate within my denomination, um, starting in the, in the 1990s particularly. Um, I want to explain all of that, how that came to be. But um, so that was when I, when I joined the Mennonites sort of in the late 1990s, this was already a churning question. Um, and, um, and that's when I began doing some reading and, and some research first as sort of the first round. And I, and I read, I read people I knew and trusted already on other things. So Willard Swartley, uh, a mentor and a colleague of mine and a teacher who's just recently died to whom I dedicate this book. He had written a book. He had been asked to do that for the, um, and had written a book, uh, on this, uh, Richard Hayes. Uh, from down there at Duke, you know, his big book on the moral vision of the New Testament, you know, I read chapter, you know, and, um, and, and some others, you know, as a first go at this to try to, you know, think about this and to sort of think, um, and, and, um, but didn't really pursue it much further. It was just a way of sort of thinking and what were the questions that were being asked, the texts that were being looked at and all these kinds of things. Um, and kind of just left it there. Um, but of course, the question kept resurfacing, pushing back to the forefront, you know, in our denomination. Um, and the next stage then was in, in uh, well, 2014, a, uh, a conference within our denomination licensed for ministry, uh, a, um, a minister uh, who was in a same-sex partnership. And this this broke the rules, this, this uh, broke an, an agreement that was had was in place among the conferences that they wouldn't do this um, on their own, you know, sort of unilaterally kind of thing. And, um, and it just sparked the debate and it flared up mm -hmm. and it flared up in just ways that would shock you. Men and I are supposed to be peaceable and nice and, and, <laughs> and all this kind of stuff, boy. Uh, I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm reading the stuff I'm reading and, and hearing and this sort of thing. And I was sort of caught in this swirl of this. And 
I mean, there were a couple sort of things, you know, one is, well, again, how to think about this. Okay. I need to think more carefully and or this isn't, this question isn't just going to simmer on the back burner. This is now going to be something which is going to churn up the church uh, and, 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 and will have consequences now um, for, for the church. And I need to be able to um, participate and partake of that discussion and so forth and speak into it um, and have and have a wise word to say. And so I need to think about this and study about it for myself to just be part of the church in which this is the question that is swirling and enveloping all of us and, and so on. Um, I also wondered what I as a philosopher had to offer um, the church. Um, and where I started was, and what philosophers do, what we do best, what we're trained to do, is to analyze arguments, right? Uh, where that's one of the first things you do, sort of look at the arguments people are making um, and the logic they're using and, and, and this kind of thing, and to examine those carefully. What are the assumptions that you're using but you haven't stated that might be questioned? What are the missteps in logic that you might use to get from point A to point B, the place where you want to go? But wait a minute, mm-hmm. the road doesn't go there, right? Um, <laughs> and that kind of that kind of a thing. And and uh, as well as you know, so I thought you know to look at some of the arguments that were being that were being flung around and back and forth, mm-hmm. um, and to offer some careful, thoughtful, calm mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, analysis and assessment of those arguments. And that's where I started. What I had to offer as a philosopher, mm-hmm. and and I wrote an article that appeared in one of our denominational magazines uh, publications about that. And then I started to think about, well, okay, we got to put this in the in the in the bigger context of scripture. And so I started thinking about that, and I started thinking about biblical hermeneutics, um, and how and you know uh, Richard Hayes does some of this in that chapter of the Moral Vision of the New Testament. Um, uh, Willard Swartley has some of that. He's written a wonderful book of hermeneutics, kind of a classic text called uh, "Slavery, Sabbath, War, and Women." And uh, on these different case issues in biblical interpretation. And so I use that also as a kind of a framework within which to, to think about this. So I wrote another article that appeared, um, you know, uh, a couple of years later, um, having gone through that kind of study. And as in the response to that article that appeared at the beginning of 2016, I started thinking, well, there's more to it than this, because, again, that was structured around this question about same-sex union, same-sex relationships, and so on, and what the scriptures say and how those fit into a a larger arc of, okay, about what scripture says and how it presents um, um, sex and marriage. So that was on the, but there was this lingering question um, that was there because, and it has to do with Ephesians 5, you know, Paul speaking of the one flesh of husband and wife in marriage as a mystery, a mystery about uh, in reference to Christ in the church. And I had no clue what to do with that. Hmm. I didn't know, because here this is Paul speaking, this is just a, uh, a, a, a very compact kind of statement, which, boy, once you start unpacking it, boy, it, it, it sort of envelops the whole of Scripture and the whole of this biblical vision of, of what marriage is packed right into those couple of verses in, in Ephesians 5. But I had no background, theological background, in which to do this. The only thing I could do is think back to my days at Notre Dame amongst Catholics, and they had a theology of marriage. Oh, boy, do they have a theology of marriage, a very rich and thick one, and very robust theology of marriage, in which this marriage as a, as a, as a sign of Christ in the church 
and and as such as what they would call a sacrament of salvation and and um, this was very important but I really didn't know how to connect all this together and to think about this and how thinking about that uh, but that was a problem that sort of left me like if we're going to drop male and female man and woman from our understanding of marriage what do we do with what Paul has said here about man and woman husband and wife joined as one flesh uh, as a mystery uh, in reference to Christ in the church. What do we do with that? That seems very important. Now, in my Anabaptist uh, you know, formation, and then I grew up going to Baptist and evangelical churches, this wasn't much talked about. Right? This wasn't much on, on the radar screen um, to, to flesh out what Paul is talking about here. So I really didn't know what to do with that. I said, do we just drop it? Hmm. Do we just drop the male-female part? And it's just what... What is one flesh anyway? What is what does that mean? You know, of course that comes from Genesis. Okay, what do, you know, and all kinds of things that were there that I really didn't know what to do with, and so that question was lingering and, and churning in my mind and my heart as I continued on to try to develop responses to various kinds of innovationist, what I call in the book, innovationist arguments or affirming arguments, arguments that are presented in favor of, of same-sex blessings, same-sex partnerships, same-sex unions. And and that's and so that I developed at first, right? those kinds of responses, critical responses to those arguments. That's what I was at home with as a philosopher. And that forms what is part three in the mm -hmm. book. And its position as part three in the book didn't come all at once because there was the possibility that that would have been the whole book that I wrote oh, at one point. Okay. It would have been a short book of 120 pages or something, 150, and that, that set of arguments. But, I, but by that time, as I was going along, this question of what marriage is really started to take hold. And I started to investigate and, and study scripture and look into the tradition, the Christian tradition, going back to the early church about this, and a whole wider horizon opened up, and the implications of what we were talking about in blessing same-sex partnerships took on a whole another question, a whole a whole new appearance, and so on. I'm I'm curious what you do with the uh, the pushback with Ephesians five that uh, there you have you know. Um, Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Yeah. Um, so is a husband kind of like the Lord and the church is submissive to the Lord? And isn't Paul just kind of working within his patriarchal vision yeah. where men are way more superior to women because Christ is way more superior to the church? Like, do we really want to map those yeah. two onto each other? And isn't the sex difference wrapped up into that patriarchal kind of vision? Yeah, sure. Uh, now... That that's a good question. Now that I deal with in one of the appendices that's online. If you buy oh, the book, right? Okay. So that deeper question, that further question about isn't this just about patriarchy? Is that what Paul is? So there's a lot that you have to do with unpacking that that household code there. Paul's addressing uh, wives, and Paul's addressing you know husbands, and then children, and parents, and slaves, and masters, right? And unpacking that. But I think it's interesting, you know, in studying that carefully, Paul does not, when Paul talks about husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, he speaks of Christ as Savior. Christ is Savior of the church and has given his life for the church to sanctify the church as his bride, as his body, his bride. It's very much nuptial language Paul is using there to speak about the church, his body, as Christ's body, as bride, and that to prepare her 
uh, the church uh, for the nuptial, for the union of Christ and the church. That is going to be the consummation of all of God's work of salvation there at the end of the Re- Revelation. And Paul sees that that's, that's the culmination of what this is all working towards. And Christ, is, as Savior Church, has given himself in sacrifice through the cross um, for the church. Um, uh, and, and it's that sense of Christ as head of the church that Paul speaks of. So if you look in Ephesians, there's three places where Paul speaks of Christ as head of the church. And one is Christ as Lord. One is Christ as kind of the source and sustainer of the church. And the other one is Christ there in that passage in Ephesians 5 is Christ as Savior. And it's that connection, Christ as Savior, that then. So it's Christ's self-sacrificial act um, for the church that is to be then the pattern for the husband's then self-sacrificial relationship to the wife. Yeah. Um, now, I, I, could still, I, I could still hear my affirming yep. friends listening. <laughs> so wait a minute, are men the savior of women then? Isn't that still yeah. that patriarch? And I, I, I hear what you saying, savior, savior sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. And Paul would never have said anything otherwise than Christ the savior of all. It's Christ as pattern. So at the beginning of chapter five, it says, be imitators of Christ, Right. And, and he offered himself as a sacrifice for us. That imitation of Christ is for the whole church. At the, you have to go back to the beginning of the of the chapter of chapter five, mm-hmm. that Christ is to be imitators of Christ um, and, and to live wow. then according to that. Right. To live to no longer live according to the patterns of the flesh and so on, but be transformed. That's at the beginning of chapter yeah. five. And then at the beginning of this household code in chapter verse 21, a verse that often gets left yeah. off, and we go right to wives, submit or be subordinate to your. Paul says, submit to one another in Christ, in reverence for Christ. So imitation of Christ is first, and all are called to that, uh, men as well as women, right? And all in the church are called to imitate Christ, and Christ's sacrifice is an imitation for all of us. And secondly, before we even start talking about those domestic relations, Mm -hmm. Paul says, submit yourselves to one another in reverence for Christ. So mutual submission within the body of Christ is the second thing. And I think, you know, you have to sort of think about context. Why does Paul address the self-sacrificial imitation of Christ to the husband? Well, culturally, he is assumed by, and that culture still exists, assumed to be the Lord, indeed the master, right? right. That would be the presumption in, in Paul's context, in the Greco-Roman context, that the, that the, that the paterfamilias, the father, the, the husband, the father, the master of the household, right, lords it over everyone else. And Paul is taking direct aim at that and saying, no, you are to be to the household as Christ is to the church. And so including, he's, he's... and first and especially, with the wife as Christ is to the church who gave himself a sacrifice for her, who did domestic duties, washing her and preparing for Mm. her. And as I think about it, Paul, he could link up what Paul says there with John 13, uh, the Last Supper, Jesus kneeling down, taking the towel in the basin, acting the part of a servant to his disciples. Um, This is so countercultural. No, Peter says, you're the Lord, you're the master. You shouldn't be at my feet as a servant. And Jesus says, unless... I wash you, you have no part in me, right? This is an intensely, well, sacramental sort of thing of our union with Christ. And, and, and so this carries over into marriage. You can use this, as, and this, I say, is where the husband should be as an imitator of Christ in marriage, at the feet of his wife, sort of 
thinking symbolically here, washing her feet as Christ washed the feet of the disciples. And that's the posture, not the Lord that your culture tells you to be the Lord, the sovereign of your household and lord it over the rest of them. You command and everyone obeys. And that's the picture that Paul presents right there. That's what it that's that's what it means for the husband then to imitate Christ in marriage in relation to um, his wife. So when you say so savior, when you say when you say Ephesians five is emphasizing the savior aspect of Christ, it's that imitation of self-sacrifice. It's right. not a position right. of it's not emphasizing right. his power, his lordship over the subordinate. No. It is no. you are giving up of yourself, which as you said, that's right. a pattern we all should follow. Doesn't mean right. yeah, okay. So that's so in a sense, I mean Paul in that passage is overturning the patriarchal yes. assumptions rather than um supporting them. I you know, I I um yeah. I was asked uh, this is years ago, ten years ago. We were preaching through Ephesians and I was assigned um uh Ephesians this passage. And it was the first time that I did a deep dive uh, in kind of the background of this passage. And so I looked at household codes and like Aristotle and others. And um, mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah, Paul, for, yeah. if we read this passage through the, simply through a modern lens, it looks very patriarchal. You read it through actual patriarchal passages that are basically saying something, I mean, g- getting at the same point, only they don't say wives submit to your husband's. Um, they say husbands, you know, make your wives. They they don't even give the women the dignity of addressing them. They're like husbands, right. you right. rule over your wives be- because they right. are lesser than you. I think there's a quote in Josephus right. because basically that, like the, the woman is less than you. Therefore, you make sure she submits. Here, yeah. it's it's a even you know this even submitting. We can play with what that even means, but I mean. Even if you take a very conservative understanding of that, it still is way, way less patriarchal. I would say not even patriarchal than other actual patriarchal passages in the ancient world. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's right, and I think that then is very important. Then, for Paul lays all that out before he gets to, you know, then he says to husbands, "You know, love your wives as your own body, as Christ loves the church, His body." Right. Right. And then this is this image then of. Christ and the church, his body, his bride joined in one, and then the husband joined to the wife, his body. And that language of she is your body, hmm. I mean, this is, you know, this is very intimate language. And it goes both ways. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul puts it exactly reciprocally. The, your body, husband, belongs to your wife. It doesn't belong to you. She mm-hmm. has authority over your body. Oh, yeah. that's a smack. <laughs> Not very patriarchal. That's a hard slap in the face. Yeah. Right? You've got to get the sense of that. That would never have been said. Right. And Paul says, husband, your wife, your body's not your own. It belongs. You pledged it to your wife. You, in, in your body, she has authority. And, and reciprocally, this mutual authority and belonging of bodies together. But it's an image that I think is grounded in the image of one flesh, yeah. of husband and wife joined as one flesh, as kind of as one body. And so that image then comes in there in Ephesians 5 of husband. And then he says for this, you know, this is, he quotes, you know, because when you were joined, he quotes then Genesis 2. And therefore, you know, the husband will be joined to cleave to the wife and they will become one flesh. Don't, he's reminding husbands, do you understand when you got married, what happened? God joined you together in one flesh, the way in which God is joining together. And that sort of evokes how God, this bigger picture of how God is joining Christ and the church together as, you know, 
together in a kind of a nuptial union. Um, and Paul also was talking about heaven and earth being joined, right? Jew and Gentile, heaven and earth. This is a, all connected together, this big picture of salvation that Paul's talking about in Ephesians. And then he condenses all that down into husband and wife joined as one flesh. Yeah. And this is a mystery, right? Yeah. Uh, with reference to Christ in the church. But it's only after Paul has recast the role of the husband, the place of the husband in relation to the wife, recast that relationship in one based on imitation of Christ's self-sacrifice um, for the church mm-hmm. and and so on, only as he has reconfigured that. Mm-hmm. Now we can say, now we can say husband and wife joined together are an image then yeah. of Christ in the church. Is, let's, let's, not, kind of along these lines, let's go back to Genesis. Um, why is sex difference an essential part of marriage? Because um, I, you know, I hear that that you're, you know, that's at the end of the day, that's kind of our point here with Ephesians five is that sex difference is necessary for this really crucial metaphor to even work, well, right? Or pause here. Pause here. That's one of the implications. Here. Okay. I think the main point that Paul is using is that is that yes that this is an image then of this big plan of God's to unite heaven and earth in Christ by way of the church and the church by way of uniting Jew and Gentile in Christ through the cross and the uniting of man and woman in marriage at the beginning of all creation, right, then stands as a symbol within creation of God's plan to unite all things in Christ, which ultimately culminates. And then that's the big picture. And then what is it about sex that is integral to that image, right? So I think those it's like, I mean, uh, Paul is he's not arguing for it. He's, he's, a, he's a, for sex. Paul yeah. doesn't develop as an argument for sex difference in marriage. That would have been taken for granted, right? 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 right, right. Sex difference, right? But we so we're sort of turning that around, and then we have to sort of think: Well, what does sex matter to that image right. of uh, of uh, of the one flesh of marriage as a as a sign, a symbol, a mystery of Christ in the yeah. church? So yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Um, yeah, because in Judaism, it wasn't a question like, "Is sex difference part of?" It? It's just when they said marriage, that's what they. Well, it would have been the question for the Romans or the Greeks either, right? right? right. I mean, yeah, nobody would have ever considered anything other than man and woman together to be marriage. Right? right, right. Even even in societies that affirm same-sex sexual relationships, they never would have categorized that as a marriage. No, like, that's something. No, 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 yeah. no. It would never have been recognized in law or yeah. anything like that, no. So in Genesis 1 and 2, um, you know, we have the one flesh passage in 2.24. Um, you have Jesus referring back to Genesis 1 and 2 in Matthew 19. Um, and I, you know, I'll get the question, like, well, why is sex difference necessary for, for marriage? Like, what is it about sex difference? Is it, is it yeah. procreation? Is it, you know, just yeah. um, some kind of complementary vision? Or, like, why... Why is sex difference necessary for marriage? I don't know if you've gotten that. Yeah. yeah. I, I get a lot of no. why questions in, in the work sure. that I do. Yeah. And yeah. Well, because God created things that way. I mean, this is not a kind of answer that a sophisticated intellectual people like to like to go to because God created, but God created things that way and for a purpose, right? And and I think it's this is sort of uh for me, it's sort of like, well, you just got to get into the, the text here and start unpacking this 
And it's and indeed, if you just take Genesis one and two as kind of a standalone kind of sort of thing, you do get some rationale for that. But you, it's the larger connections of how this is connected to God's purposes in creation and God's promises in covenant. And you've got to make these connections, right? And what we've been talking about with Christ in the church as a, a, a man and woman in marriage is a symbol of Christ in the church, and that as a cipher, kind of a very condensed formula to in which is contained all of this Paul's vision for God's work of salvation and so on. That's where all the promises of covenant are ultimately leading towards and are fulfilled in. Um, but that those promises of covenant are given within the, the realm of creation. They aren't separate from it. They are joined to it. And so this is one of the temptations, right, that we have. I call it a temptation there, but I, I think it is a theological temptation. And, uh, and one, of the, one of the strongest arguments in favor of same-sex union precisely is Robert Song's book, A Covenant and Calling, which I deal with at length at a couple different points in my book. Um, what, what he does in there is he wants to use Jesus as, as a kind of leverage point, as it were, the coming of Jesus, the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus as a place for the pulling apart of covenant and creation. Mm. And creation's kind of been fulfilled and left behind, and we're moving forward to the fulfillment of covenant. But the structures of, and forms of creation are then separated from the purposes uh, and promises of covenant. And I think, you know, that is, so when we go back to Genesis, uh, we need to sort of read that, not only um, just on its own, or even just as looking ahead, but we read that looking back from the place of Christ, um, from through the lens of Christ, um, and see how all of this is leading up to him, right? And that's what he taught the apostles, you know, after his resurrection, to read all of scripture in reference to him, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, right? Well, that's what we need to do. And, and so we need to connect up when we read Genesis 1 to not just as a standalone thing, as if God, God invented marriage and just said, oh, isn't that nice? Now let's, you know, like Monty Python style, now for something completely different, right? And we just move on to another scene, cut scene, we move to some other, some other whatever. No, this is, this is, things are integrated here um, with what follows in Genesis 1 and 2. So we see unfolded through Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation of the whole order of things and, and, and the creation then of human beings uh, within that order of creation that God specifically creates humankind, male and female. Um, and that this is emphasis and both in the image of God, equally in the image of God, male and female, he created them in the image of God, he created them. And, and, and then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And then to have dominion uh, over the creation. And so this is, this is, so there's a process here with a purpose. Um, and the, the male and female is not incidental to that. Oh, isn't that interesting? I just wanted to do something different here. Yeah. But it has nothing to do with, with anything else. No, this is all integrated into a whole. And it's not just some other, some will describe it uh, as well. It's just another facet of diversity in God's creation and beautiful yeah. and big creation or whatever. But it, it's not, no. There's a, and this is where I would talk about, I use the language of sexuate correspondence. Yeah. We often talk about sex difference, the difference between man and woman or male and female. That's often the language that is used. But I think there's something more going on here. Yes, God creates, sex is a created difference. 
Um, God creates sex within within creation and differentiating. And you see that very uh, a picture of that, of course, in Genesis 2 with God creating uh, the woman from the man's side and so on. And But they're created as corresponding counterparts. Um, and, and, um, and so sex is a, yes, it is a difference that God creates in humankind, male and female, but it's a difference that correlates them together. And it also then unites them. And in that correlation and uniting, then there is generation, right? The generation of new life, the potential for that. So be fruitful and multiply. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has a purpose. What is that purpose? Well, that purpose is to propagate God's image, human beings, throughout creation, and 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 to perform a a uh, among other things, understanding this, that to perform a certain task that human beings are to uh, uh, to sort of govern creation mm-hmm. um, as God's kind of viceroys, as God's you know, vice regents in creation. Um, as, as it were, the first and big Orthodox tradition will talk about this beautifully, that the man and the woman, they are king and queen of creation, having you know, been given this task to rule over all the other creatures uh, in a wise way that reflects the wisdom in which God has created all things. Um, and so this then is how the plan goes forward. And male and female, that, that correspondence that of sex, that difference in correspondence of sex, is essential to that and for that plan going forward. Um, it's also then from this, from the union of marriage that God is going to generate a covenant people. So the plan of salvation, you know, cre- the, the, the creation plan um, uh, runs into a problem, right? I mean, sort of the fall, right? And so how is God going to rescue his creation? A faithful and righteous God is not going to abandon the creation, but is going to re- rescue it and restore it and redeem it. Um, and uh, But God's not going to abandon what God started with male and female. So no, God's going to carry that forward, but it's going to start over again, as it were, after the, right? So you have the calling of Abraham and a promise made in his family and a promise made to Abraham and to Sarah. Um, and, and it's a promise of, a, of descendants, promise of a family that's going to be generated from their, from their union, right? And in a very unlikely way, right? And we know the story, right? There, yeah. No children, and then, and then this promise comes. But this then, this male and female, marriage of male and female, then is, God takes that up into this covenant plan uh, and the promises of covenant and uses it to generate then a covenant people who are going to, uh, are the recipients of God's promises um, and so forth. And they too have a purpose, right? The covenant people have, have a purpose um, to, well, be the light to the nations, to spread God's word and God's teaching to all nations so that all nations will see this. They will live God's way. They will proclaim God's word and all nations will see this. And as the prophets envision, everyone sort of come to God to learn God's way and become part of God's people. And so this is this is this is integral. That So what the, are the purposes of marriage here um, that are embedded within the biblical story? Um, that's, I think, where we need to see how this is connected into the whole biblical story and what God's purposes are and how marriage is, 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 is functioning within that. Um, and, and, and once you sort of see that, you think, oh, then man and woman, male and female, that's integral to what it is that God purposed from the beginning um, as part yeah. of marriage. And as we see de- developing, you know, the prophets begin to see um, marriage, and they look back at 
you know, the uh, to Genesis and so on, they begin to see marriage right as a as an image, as a figure mm-hmm. of God in Israel, God and the covenant people. That this covenant is itself a kind of marriage, mm-hmm. um, and start describing it and depicting it that way, as a, usually as a way of reminding Israel who they are and calling them back to who they are. And you see that particularly in Hosea mm-hmm. um, and so on. But it's also there in uh, in um, mm-hmm. in uh, Isaiah, especially. There's a beautiful, beautiful passage at uh, chapter 60, 61, and so forth of Isaiah, where where he lays this out, uh, Israel in exile being restored as the bride of Christ, as the bride of God, um, and uh, and, uh, restored in covenant and and restored to, uh, as God's people and so on, being reunited, and so on. And so this then becomes an image then of God's work of salvation, right? And, and And the and the, the apostles pick this up, right? John, uh, Paul and John pick this up and carry this forward as a way of telling the whole story of salvation. And you see those Isaiah see references I- come up in, in Revelation, right? Um, yes. Revelation yes. saturated yes. has all these allusions back to some of those passages. Um, okay, so because I, it sounds so good, I, I need to push back. <laughs> yeah. Because everything I, I – in yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. So, so what you're saying is that – uh, I like your phrase "sexual correspondence" because even a phrase like "opposite sex" makes it sound like men and women are completely different. Well, we're more like each other than we are different. I mean, our common humanity, in a sense, has probably more <laughs> likeness than, than difference. So even "opposite" makes it sound like men are from Mars, women from Venus, and I just I, yeah. don't think that's helpful. Yeah. So "sexual correspondence," I like that. Um, I might still say "sex difference," but I'm I'm, I'm saying it with sure. your understanding of mine. Um, so you're just to summarize. So you're saying like sex difference in marriage is woven into the fabric of creation and not just creation, but in terms of this covenant that is launched throughout the testaments. What about the argument that, um, that procreation and marriage was vital, uh, for the creation of Israel was certainly, um, vital um, in the Old Testament. I mean, even the laws, the Leverite laws and others that kind of protected uh, childless women, like like having kids was kind of a, a big deal, right? Uh, both for the creation of the nation and also just economically and all these things. But when you get to the New Testament, you just don't see that same emphasis in procreation. Now it's discipling the nations. It's going to all mm-hmm. nations. And it's almost like the, the call of evangelism and making disciples has almost replaced... Um, procreation as the means by which the the kingdom is going to move forward. Therefore, when you have procreation being non-essential anymore, therefore sex difference in marriage is no longer that essential. Um, Yeah. There's a, there's another, there's that temptation, right? To replace that sense that the covenant going forward in Christ sort of replaces what God has done in creation and through covenant with Israel. So there's one sense of, and it's sometimes called supersessionism in in Christian. It's the sense that this new covenant uh, through Christ, uh, through which the church comes into being as this uh, union of Jew and Gentile. Well, this kind of replaces Israel, and the promises to Israel. Well, they're just they just come up empty or dead or whatever. And now there's de- whoa, 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 whoa. God does not abandon God's promises. God is faithful and true from beginning to end. And so those promises are not simply dropped. And we have somewhat a kind of replacement here. Nor does God abandon creation. Um, God is a, this is all the work of redeeming creation. 
Um, and that work is not yet done. Paul reminds us of that in, in Romans 8, and, uh, you know, the groaning of creation, waiting for its redemption. And we are the, sort of the first fruits of that. Um, and, uh, and we still wait for the redemption of our bodies and so forth. And, and that, this is, that this work of redeeming uh, creation still goes forward. And there's nothing. There is nothing in the New Testament that suggests that God is just saying, oh, creation's done. I'm, right. I'm done with that. Again, I'm on to the next yeah. thing. You know, I'm on to now for something completely different or whatever. Now we'll just do and so forth. Um, I think this is, uh, this is, in fact, there's much there that affirms this, um, that indeed that in Christ, you know, Colossians 1, there's this beautiful Christ hymn, uh, which talks about through Christ, in Christ, for Christ, God created all things, and God is at work in Christ, reconciling all things in creation, mm-hmm. all things in creation, right? And and that includes male and female, right? This is not sort of abandoned or or left beside or left behind or something like this. Um, now it is true that the covenant people is not just going to be this expansion of the of the um, uh, of family lines and so on. This built up a covenant people. But this was always intended to attract and draw others to to itself. It was never sort of a, a self to be a self-contained thing, right? That was the vision of the prophecy. You see it in Isaiah, all the nations coming uh, to Jerusalem, to Zion, to learn the law of the Lord, and so on. At the beginning of Isaiah, that was that that was the purpose, and so on. So this was a, a people that would continue to attract, and that way of being, God's people, continues. There's nothing in the New Testament that speaks against that, and in fact, there's much that's speaks for it, including what we were talking about earlier with Ephesians 5. Paul is trying to work with the idea of what comes to be called in the early church, uh, uh, patristic era theologians, right, sort of the domestic church, right, in which, in which, uh, in which uh, husband and wife marry together and the children generated from their marriage and so forth. They become kind of a, a, a little church, a sign of the bigger church. Um, yeah. And, and a place, context in which discipleship happens, right? In which God is worshipped, in which, in which the next generation of believers is discipled, through which neighbors are served, and in which then, which then the world has a sign, a, a little sign, a little visible sign. What's this Christianity about? What's this kingdom of God about? Well, we see it in miniature then in this domestic church. Um, and so by no means is this done away with, but this was a question that was debated in the early church. And we shouldn't sort of, uh, sort of dismiss, it's not something to be dismissed out of hand. This was debated and there were those who thought exactly that way. Marriage is being done away with. Um, Jesus has told us in his response to the question from the Sadducees about the resurrection that in the resurrection of the dead, there will be no giving and, and receiving in marriage, that, uh, that that will come to an end. Um, and so the, the thought was, okay, well, we're kind of already living into that, right? Jesus is raised from the dead. We've been baptized into the risen Christ. We're kind of living already into that eschatological future. And so that means that God has said enough of the, what came before, right? And if you need that to keep chaste, if you need that to keep from fornicating and promiscuity, fornication and promiscuity or whatever, okay, um, so there were groups that were like that, that had that to say um, in, the, in the early church. Um, and, uh, and others that various kinds of twists and turns rejected the created order. Yeah. Um, either saw it as something past 
or as something that was just a kind of necessary evil. But now we've moved past that in the in the era of the risen Christ. Yeah. So that yeah. was that was debated out. Um, and um, and the consensus of the church came, no, that that's not what God is doing in Jesus Christ. Indeed, this would make no sense because we confess that God has created all things through Christ, yeah. that Christ is not a liberator from the creation. Christ is the redeemer of all creation. And and uh, and so um, and so this isn't about creation in some way being left behind or that's done and so forth. But ultimately, the yeah. renewing of all creation, that's the vision yeah. that Christ gives us and that the church um, was given by Christ and that. And so on. I'll give you the way I've kind of responded to that question. Again, just to bring us back to the question, um, you know, while marriage was seemed to be very essential to the furthering of the kingdom in the Old Testament, um, the argument goes that that is no longer there in the New Covenant. Um, It's a this is this is correct me if I'm wrong. This is Robert Song's kind of main point. um, So yeah. Because he would say, yes, uh, sex difference in marriage and marriage, the old covenant, mm-hmm. absolutely. But we just see a, there's discontinuity in the new. The way I've understood it, and I would love to hear your thoughts, is that, I mean, under the old covenant, in the Old Testament, in the theocracy, the creation of the nation of Israel, you, you do see marriage and procreation. I don't think the ancients would have separated those two. No. <laughs> um, no. Marriage was for the purpose of procreation. Um, you do see that almost... <sighs> essential for human flourishing um like if the the whole idea of like singleness being a legitimate vocation i you don't see that in the old testament um and this would be one kind of again one of the several things that are kind of disc there is discontinuity between the old covenant new covenant the discontinuity is not in the definition of marriage or even the purpose of marriage it's that Mm -hmm. under the new covenant now we do see singleness as a legitimate um, some might even say better, you know, high, uh, um, vocation, but mar- but for those who are called to marriage, um, th- that is still the, the calling to marriage is still the same, that, that procreation is still wrapped up in, in that calling, um, which raises a question that I do, I want to get to with like, what do you deal with, uh, old people getting married, infertility, people that choose not to have kids. I would love to hear your thoughts on that in just oh. a second. Um, but yeah. is, does that, is that, so the what? yeah, to summarize again, um, that marriage hasn't changed between old and new covenants, but marriage as an essential part of kind of human flourishing or human existence or kingdom vocation is, is, is no longer, it's not emphasized in that way. And singleness is being elevated in the new covenant. Singleness, uh, chosen single, singleness, uh, you know, Jesus talks about, you know, those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Right? Yeah, so he yeah. said some are born eunuchs and exactly what he's referring to. There could be a lot of various things, something that would be an impediment, a physical impediment to someone being married and uniting in sex and generating children. Um, whatever that would have been. Some have been made eunuchs, and some speculate, for example, Daniel and his friends may have been made eunuchs in the courts of Babylon mm-hmm. um, and uh, by others. And, and Isaiah spoke to them, um, and promising them a place, you know, in the right. in the in the Israel, the re- restored from exile, and so on. Eunuchs who hold fast to my covenant, they shall, you know, have a place um, and a name within my house. Uh, Isaiah says for God. Um, and and uh, then Jesus talks about, you know, well, these eunuchs for the kingdom, right? Those who have chosen to become, as it were, become eunuchs. 
and and they've chosen to forego marriage, right? And they become and so Jesus honors them, and um, and there's uh, and of course Jesus himself was not married, right? And so and and, and a life of following Jesus, well, that can be a life in which we are not married, in which someone is not married by choice in following Jesus and so on. And so this, so there's a sense in which the, in the early church recognizes this, the incarnation and life of Jesus opens up something new. There's no question about that. What we have to be careful about is thinking about, well, what is this new thing and not pitting against the old. And that was the, that was the debate. And I see that in Robert Song's book and this using of the new as a, uh, as a kind of a wedge to wedge against the old. Mm. Um, and that had to be sort of, but Jesus affirms the old, right? Yeah. When he's talking to the, to the Pharisees about divorce, he affirms Genesis and says, and this is what God's will. Mm-hmm. This is still God's will, what Genesis says. And when he's talking to the Sadducees, even about resurrection, it, uh, that yes, the marriage will cease in the resurrection, but the implication is now, the logic of it is now, marriage continues to sustain the human race through procreation. Right, right. And that is still part of the human vocation. That has never been rejected, um, that that's no longer part of the human vocation. What's been opened up is something new. Um, and, and that is the life in which we choose to forego that in, in, in following Christ in view of what is to come in resurrection, yeah. um, oriented towards that, the, the, the culmination of God's plan of salvation in that way. Um, now, the question is whether this is better than or something. I mean, that was debated. Certainly there were those in their church. That was a common argument that there's a superiority to celibacy over marriage. Mm-hmm. I don't find that in the New Testament. I think that's a we could delve into specific texts or whatever. Yeah. Um, but um, I, don't, I don't think that's an implication of what Jesus says or anything Paul says um, about celibacy and marriage, that one is kind of superior to the other. But we now have another vocation, and but they exist together within the church. And together, both of those vocations testify to, to creation and covenant, united and united in Christ. Um, and that as being where all things are being drawn towards, um, that... Uh, and that covenant and its possibilities, mm-hmm. the new covenant and its new possibilities in Christ, which includes celibacy, are never ripped apart from the creation that God created through Christ to begin with mm-hmm. and its purposes. They're never ripped apart from that, but rather they're going, they're coming together and, can, mm-hmm. and being brought together in Christ in fulfillment. So I think this is a this is a challenge because it it'd be an easy sort of thing to say, okay, we got this new thing in the church. New thing in Christ, and that means while well, we're getting rid of the old thing, right. and there right. had to be theologians and bishops who pushed back against that and pushed back against that and said no, um, and um, and so I think I think that's an important lesson to learn from the early church debate uh, that was had in the second to the fourth century about marriage um, that kind of comes sort of to a culmination with Augustine and Chrysostom. Uh, at the end of the fourth century, that um, that that we can learn now, because we find some very similar kinds of arguments that are being put forth in mm-hmm. the debate around uh, same-sex union that kind of rehearse, <laughs> yeah. with perhaps without even realizing it, these arguments that were put up long ago, right? And and the church already addressed those. It doesn't mean there's nothing new to say, or that they got everything exactly right, or you know we should just take what they said for granted or whatever, but they give us sort of, I think, some resources in yeah. which to draw to, uh, to think about this. 
So what about what about the question of procreation? Um, like, how, how would you even word the relationship between procreation and the means? God says it's good. Okay. <laughs> but is it essential for a marriage to be a legitimate marriage? And if so, um, uh, like, why why can two people who are well past the age of childbearing um, get married? And in a non-procreative relationship that's, that we call marriage, and so why can't a same-sex couple yeah. who also are in a non-procreative yeah. relationship get married? <laughs> my my answer may evoke some laughter, even from you, um, is that when and I, and I and I don't know that any pastor would ever have has ever told any couple this question. Maybe <laughs> I can't wait for this. <laughs> fourth century, they might ever in the Middle Ages. Uh, well, people didn't live as long then, you know, much past childbearing years, you know, on average. But huh. that, yes, if, you know, we will bless this marriage. Um, but when we when we when pastors prepare couples for marriage, I mean, I don't know what, what pastors usually do. I'm, I'm happy to be married to a pastor and I sort of know what she does with <laughs> preparing couples. You know, but emphasis on procreative purposes should be. Part of that, it's not the whole of marriage, but it's integral, and and openness to, to, to procreation as part of when you enter marriage, that that gift of new life, um, and um, and then lots of questions come up about that. What about contraception? What about this and the other kinds of things that I think have to be? How are those part of the? How do those fit? Do they fit? How? And what discipline should we be exercising around that and so forth? I think these are a lot of questions that just are off to the margins of conversation and not as well dealt with in uh, in the church as they as they should be. Um, but I think you could. I think we should say exactly the same thing for older couples when they're getting married: is openness to procreation. And we say, well, look, I'm 70, she's 75, and I said, and how old were Abraham and Sarah? <laughs> now that may discourage, yeah. but I mean, being willing to be Abraham and Sarah, being willing to be Zachariah and Elizabeth. You know, who also were much, you know, the new story of Jesus starts in the way the story of God's people started with Abraham and Sarah. There's a deliberate, purposeful parallel there of recognizing, you know, Abraham uh, or Zachariah and Elizabeth, you know, that openness to that. I mean, it's not likely to happen. It wasn't likely for Abraham and Sarah to have a child or Zachariah and Elizabeth They'd gotten so old, right? We're beyond those years, right? This isn't going to happen. Yeah. And yet God made it happen. And are we at least open to God doing a new thing? That's what we want, need to say that marriage is. Marriage is a new thing that God does in the order of creation. God creates male and female, humankind in that difference in correspondence of sex. But then God joins them together. Right? That's a union that God creates. And Jesus' interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 in Matthew 19, I think, is very important to pay attention to how he words that. And that he words it as an act of God. Right, that that that's a pronouncement of God. They should become one flesh, and that God brings them together. That's a new thing in creation that God. And then from that new thing in creation, that union of one flesh comes forth another new thing, the, the offspring, and so forth. And this becomes a sign and of the new thing God is doing through Christ in the church, and so on. That you, when you're married, be willing to be a sign of that new thing and be open to God doing a new thing. God is doing a new thing and bringing you together in marriage. And be be open to God doing a new thing through your marriage, and and be like, oh, you know, I mean, it's not likely to happen. I've not heard of it in my lifetime. Maybe I don't know about you, but then again, who had ever heard of it in their lifetimes yeah. when Zachary and Elizabeth are pregnant, or when Abraham and Sarah are pregnant? What about the, what about the 
And so that's what I would sort of say. That's the attitude within which you should go. And God can do a God can do a new thing if God chooses. Um, but be but it's the willingness to be part of that that God is doing. That this marriage. I mean, part of it is sort of like we can't ever at any point say marriage is just about the two people, right? Right. That's not Christian marriage. Right, and yeah. so we have to sort of think about how 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 um, uh, how how this is about God's purposes mm-hmm. and, and promises, no matter at what stage of life you might be getting married. What about, and I, we're getting lost in the weeds a little bit, but again, I, I don't, I, 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 if I can like prophetically hear my audience saying, yeah, but what about, you know, and I, I know sure. when I listen to podcasts and I do that a lot and I'm like, well, yeah, you got to ask this question now. So I, I'm trying to kind of like, you know, uh, be a surrogate audience here. I mean, what about, yeah, you got a woman that's like maybe 45 and maybe she can get pregnant, but man, that, that's going to introduce all kinds of risks of, I don't know, birth yeah. abnormalities or even health risks to the kid or even to the mom. Like, cause it's one thing right. for a 65 year old to say, you know, whatever she's well past the, you know, again, but apart from a Abrahamic Sarah miracle, but what about somebody in that in-between stage where it's like, no, they could get pregnant, but man, that's, that's, that, that's right. um, taking some risks there. I mean, um, right. Um, yeah, I don't. I think the 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 this is something I do address. I mean, it's uh, in a kind of in a f- extended footnote, but I think it's an important question. Um, and I look you you look at the um, the the be fruitful and multiply is is grammatically it's 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 a, and it's an imperative, right? In Hebrew and Greek, I mean, which is the mood of command, right? I mean, this is what you shall do. I talk about it as a, as a commission not a command because certainly in this with this side of the fall we recognize that um, that uh, that things don't operate as God has um, has willed them to do from the beginning that sin has corrupted things that and it's, a, and it's affected creation mm-hmm. um, and so we recognize that there are, you know, whether there are couples who, despite all their best intensive, you know, can't conceive a child or, or don't succeed at conceiving a child, as well as situations in which conceiving a child very much looks like this would be very dangerous um, and and so on uh, to mother or child or both. And, and in those kind of circumstances, I don't think we're called to sort of put human well-being aside, right, or just say, well, you just got to, you know, uh, run the risks and, you know, leave it to God or anything, uh, something like that. God's given us discernment and discretion. And we understand that when we undertake these responsibilities, we undertake this commission uh, that's there in marriage, um, according to God's purposes, that those purposes are, of course, for our well-being. They're not there to kill us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're there yeah. to give us life. And the same thing, you know, um, with, you know, with discipleship. I mean, there may be times occasions where boy the only way to be faithful is to run that risk of death and and so on but it's not a and, and the other church was was skeptical of people who seemed to want to be trying to martyr themselves mm-hmm. right yeah. trying to get themselves killed as a witness to jesus this was looked down upon no 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 you know even you, you know how many times did athanasius escape from those who wanted to you know arrest him and throw him in prison you know paul himself escaped from prison and other kinds of things you know um or could have escaped i guess but you know this is this is not something where you 
that's not the sense here of, 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 the, of the Christian life. And I don't think it's the sense that of the commitment of marriage that, um, that indeed that we undertake this com- a commitment with its commission um, at all costs to ourselves um, and, and so on. Like, oh, you know, we're in poverty. We can barely feed ourselves. But God says be fruitful and multiply. So let's have one more. You know, that's not there. Nowhere is that commanded. Okay. Nowhere is that sort of picture like you should, you know, um, you know, produ- you know, generate children to the point. Yeah. To the point where you can't care. No, this is not a picture of human flourishing, right? right. And so we recognize we and and these are things which for those who which is um, these are places of grief and of uh, of disappointment uh, for for you know for parents you know or for uh, couples when they if like this is what it looks like we you know for, I, we know a couple my wife and I know a couple you know, who would love to have children and they've done some fostering, but, but the wife has a heart problem. And if she were to get pregnant, you know, probably her heart, she wouldn't survive. The baby probably wouldn't survive, you know, and so forth. They would just go, that's not what God has purposed, right? Is that this be something which brings death and destruction on us. It's to bring forth life. So if we can see because of the fallen condition of things and so forth, that this is what it's going to bring forth, you know, then, you know, God's purpose is to bring forth life through this, um, not to put some burden of yeah. uh, on us yeah. that we cannot that we cannot bear. And this is, uh, yeah. we're going to die trying to fulfill this. Right. The, the way I've worded it is, you know, marriage is oriented toward and structured toward procreation to keep yeah. it a little bit more on the general level, not get lost in the weeds of kind of individuality. Like Homo sapiens are an upright two-legged species doesn't mean the f- people that might have been born without a leg, whatever, aren't human anymore. But right. as a species, right. as a category, yeah. we are bipedal, right? Um, and yeah. so same thing, marriage by definition is structured toward, oriented toward and structured towards procreation. Doesn't mean procreation must be a necessary result of every individual marriage for it to be legitimate, but it still yeah. must be structured toward that and so even an 85-year-old couple are still structured toward procreation, right. even if it's right. – or or even a couple that maybe for health risks choose not to have kids. And I do think that that's – because, again, I can hear my same-sex friend or my, my same-sex couples saying, yes, we are also like your infertile heterosexual couples incapable of having kids, and therefore we choose to adopt and um, yeah. isn't that – but I said it still is – it's still I, – I resonate with the heart and goodness, some of my – some same-sex couples who have a heart for adoption and are criticized by my conservative friends, I'm like, well, are you going to step in and adopt? You know, like, and so I, I, I want to recognize even goods within a relationship that I don't think is aligned with God's will. Um, but it's still that it, it, it still isn't structured towards procreation. Right. right? right. I mean, and, and I do think yeah. that's an important piece of the very essence yes. of marriage. Um, yeah. yeah, I do address that that argument. Yeah. Sort of looking at what are the what are the kind of implications if uh, for both procreation as well as marriage as a symbol of Christ in the church. What are the implications here um, if for blessing same sex unions? So that's I address that yeah. at length. Yeah. That that argument are same sex couples kind of counterparts to um, uh, infertile male female couples, aren't they? Just well, both they come together, but they can't seem to generate children um and and um 
And so I, I, I address that and examine yeah. that very carefully. It deserves to be examined because I think it doesn't help for, for those who are more traditionally minded about marriage within the church to just not think about, right. well, what are we doing uh, on, on sort of the, the other side? Well, how, do, how are we thinking about that couple right. that can't have, uh, has not been able to conceive uh, or continue a pregnancy? Maybe they can yeah. conceive, but they keep losing, you know, the, the, the child. Um, and, um, you know, and, and other kinds of, you know, what about those who seek, who can't conceive, but then use technology to try to right. bring about yeah. conception and so on? Well, can't same-sex couples do uh, a counterpart thing, you know? Um, and, and then what about, couples who could conceive and there's no impediments in the way there's no health problem but choose not to they choose to be childless and and well can't we and i think that's the strongest argument Mm -hmm. is is if we're going to um bless such couples you know and consider them to be genuinely married well what about you know can't we just look at same-sex couples as you know as a counterpart to uh, to those who are chosen childlessness. I don't consider the case you were talking about with uh, a couple where there's health issues and so right. forth. It's a circumstance that's not by choice. Um, and it is, uh, so I don't, I consider that differently yeah. from those who don't face such circumstances and potential burdens and risks to um, different from those who don't face those and decide for whatever reason, and maybe for some noble reasons, you know, yeah. even to choose not to have children. So, yeah. Well, that's what I love about yeah. your book, Darren. Uh, for those watching on YouTube, this is, I haven't, I haven't lifted it up yet. So uh, Marriage, Scripture, and the Church, um, Theological Discernment on the Question of Same-Sex Union. Uh, the, what I love about it, I mean, I love many things about it, Darren, but it's so careful and thorough. That That's, gosh, we just, we need carefulness and thoroughness. We can't give thin answers to thick questions. And even like, I mean, just the last 20 minutes, I mean, this procreation question is super, yeah. super important. And there's lots of variations and nuances that need to be addressed thoughtfully. And I see... And I Chris, yeah, I don't, I don't pretend to have all, all the answers or just it's, it's, these are questions we have to continue to think through. Um, and so I, I don't suppose that what I've offered in the book is kind of the final word from me <laughs> or from anybody uh, on these questions. Um, and uh, but yes, an attempt to give a careful, thoughtful um, uh, response to them. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on Theology Nara. I got another meeting to get to here in just a second. Okay. So yeah, it was great, uh, great talking with you. And thank you so much for your really. Uh, thoughtful, humble work you've produced in this book, man. It's just such a, such a great book. Thank you, Preston. All right. God bless. You.